you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Jephiah, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their Amorites and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them, as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Joshua? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Well, you just heard uh, the reading from the Bible, and I want to begin by asking, do you think God can do the extraordinary? Because what we just read of is extraordinary. Actually, in terms of miracles, I think we often think about the big miracles as being the parting of the Red Sea, or even the parting of the Jordan River, or the walls of Jericho falling, or uh, in the New Testament, Jesus walking on the water. Actually, what we just read about is, is not the, the best known of all the miracles, but it, it's actually probably 
the most incredible, the most difficult to grasp. And the reason why, in fact, this miracle of the sun standing still has been used, particularly in the last hundred years, by uh, opponents of the Christian message as saying, see, that's why I can't believe it. Because it's impossible. That can't happen. And, and if you're like me and you haven't got an astrophysics background, you go like, I don't really think that's impressive. The sun just stands still for a little while. You know, what's the problem with that? But those of you who have scientific backgrounds and astrophysics backgrounds, I'm sure like all of you do, uh, you will know that that's actually really significant because what, it, what is happening potentially is that the, the rotation of the earth has stopped and the rotation of the earth around the sun has stopped, which I'm told would wreak absolutely global catastrophe on the world as a whole. The sun just can't stand still in the sky for a whole day, as we're told, that it happened. So, um, one of the things we could do as we come to this text is we could look at the evidence for miracles. Uh, we could consider, can God, can God do the extraordinary? And we could spend time thinking about how the laws of nature can at times be broken by a God who stands above the laws of nature. And that would actually be a valid way of spending our time together. Because if you're a Christian here this morning, if you're not, it's great to have you with us. But the reality is, is that the Christian faith is fundamentally supernatural. It speaks of a, of a supernatural God coming into the world He created in supernatural ways, and, and the reality of miracles is a valid topic. In fact, um, it's sometimes easy for people outside the church to go, yeah, it's all kind of mumbo-jumbo nonsense. These Christians don't really examine how the world works, and so they believe a whole lot of tripe, which they get fed. It's just not real. But the reality is far different. I became a Christian because of the, the rational evidence for a creator God ruling this world and coming into this world in the person of Jesus. That's how I became a Christian because I was convinced that there's no other explanation that comes close. It takes far more faith to believe that all this just happened. Way more faith. But I'm not going there today. As I said, it would be a valid way to go. But when I look at this text of Joshua chapter 10, this is not, I think, the main point of the text. It may be for us as we wrestle, wrestle with miracles, good thing to do. But the main point is not that, I don't think. And it's a point that to understand it, we have to go back into the backstory. You've got to understand some of the backstory that leads to where we are in Joshua chapter 10. And in fact, you've got to go a long way back to the backstory. You've got to go 400 years back. So listen to this in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, 400 years at least before this is written. Joshua chapter 10. This is what Genesis 15, 12 says. As the sun was going down... A deep sleep fell on Abram, that's the one who becomes Abraham, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. He's speaking about the, the, the time in Egypt. And they shall come back here, that's Canaan, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Notice that? 
God makes this amazing promise to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, at this point, Abraham hasn't got any children, and he says, your children are going to become plentiful and multitude, and he says, they're going to go from this land, Canaan, where you are now, they're going to go to another land where they'll be sojourners, and they're going to come back, but it's not going to happen just yet. Why? Because the the sin, the iniquity of these people called the Amorites who are living in the land of Canaan is not yet full. So God says, hold it up. 400 years. Hold it up. That's the backstory, but when we come to Joshua chapter 10, the sin of the Amorite people in the land of Canaan has become complete. And the big message that we see here in Joshua chapter 10 is the judgment is is falling. The vengeance of, of God falls on the people now of Canaan. It's it's a passage about judgment. The miracle that takes place serves to actually increase the judgment, as we'll see in a moment. Where it's a it's a big theme in Joshua. Uh, next week we've got Andy Judd who's a, um, a lecturer at Ridley College, an Old Testament lecture, and he's coming to look at us, at some of, with us at some of the questions that Joshua raises about the justice of God. Because if you've been reading through Joshua, as many have, if you've been coming along on Sundays as, as we work through this book together, there are questions that you and I certainly will ask about the justice of God, because some of what we read sounds suspiciously like genocide, doesn't it? God commanding the elimination of an entire people in Canaan and replacing them with the people of Israel. It raises questions about how can God do that? How can a loving God do that kind of stuff? They're really, that's, they're really good questions. And, and next week, Andy's going to be here with us working through some of the questions that you and I have as we come to Joshua, especially with, with our eyes today. But I'm not going to go there as much today either. I'm going to leave that for Andy. I'm going to look specifically at what this chapter, as it speaks about the judgment of God, means for you and I uh, today. What, what does it mean that God withheld his judgment for 400 years on the people of, uh, of the Amorites in the land of Canaan, and then the judgment fell? But first, let's look at actually what happens in a bit more detail. We heard it read, but let's look at it. And it started in, in chapter 10, verse 1. Before I do, I'm going to pray, because that's, that's still our hearts. Father, this is your word We believe that you've given to us that we might know you through it, that we might grow and mature in our faith in you through it. And so we pray now that in the next moments as we look at this chapter of Scripture written so long ago, but inspired by the Holy Spirit and and designed to feed and grow us right now, Father, we ask that you do your work amongst us in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, chapter 10 begins with this guy called Adonai Zedek. And he's the Amorite king of Jerusalem. And Adonai Zedek hears about what's happened that Dave ran us through last week at Gibeon. This city of Gibeon was uh, one of the major Canaanite power plays, and it has not just gone out of the battle, it's switched sides. If you're here last week, you'll know they made a, a, a pretty stealthy deal with Israel. They tricked Israel, and they are now on the other side. And Adonai Zedek is not happy about what has changed with the balance of power. It's a big deal. We're actually told that he's terrified. He's frightened by the news. But rather than wait until Israel comes for him in Jerusalem, he decides he's going to take preemptive action. 
So he gets an alliance together, he sends the messengers out, he speaks to all the other kings, and he basically says, look, we're going to have to join together because otherwise they're going to tackle us one by one, but if we come together, we outnumber them, we're military superior, so we'll crush them, and we'll begin with these traitors at Gibeon, and we'll send a lesson to everybody else that, that you don't do deals with Israel. And that's what they do. They get a huge coalition together of five kings. They, they come and they surround Gibeon. And the people of Gibeon go like, uh-oh, we're in trouble now. And so they send messengers to Joshua saying, help, we're on your team now. Come and help us because we're outnumbered and outgunned and we're in trouble. And uh, at this point, Joshua gets the word from God, which says, Joshua 10 verse 8, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. This coalition of kings has been given by God into the hands of Joshua. Not a man of them will stand before you. So uh, Joshua gets that very encouraging promise from God, and then he takes action. You know, this is, this is, there's a, the whole sermon here in some ways. You know, sometimes we think that God gives us a word and then he'll do it all. No, God gives Joshua the word, and then what does Joshua do? He uses his brains. He does an all-night march. I've done plenty of them. They're not easy. Do an all-night march. And the armies of Israel arrive at dawn and the allied enemy armies are shocked, they're surprised. And then what happens is that God throws them into confusion. And then as we look at this, the theme of judgment, they're running away from Israel. Israel is following him and we're told that God sends massive hailstones from the sky. And they must have been massive Chunks of, of ice so big that they're, they're striking down the, the soldiers as they're running away. Israel is not touched. But we're told that more enemy soldiers are killed by God's judgment in the hail than have been killed by the sword of Israel. Significant miracle there as well. And then while this is going on, you, you can picture in your mind's eye that the enemies are fleeing, the, soldiers are, the Israelite soldiers are pursuing them, um, but the sun, you know, it's starting to move in the sky, and it seems that most likely what happens is, again, this, this miracle is some debate about what Joshua actually prays and what actually happens. The most obvious reading of the text is that Joshua says, let the sun stand still. Why? Because I need more time to execute the judgment on the enemies of God. Because the enemies are running away, they're going to be looking at the sun saying, it's going to get dark soon. They don't, they don't have MVGs back then, so it's going to get dark. We can run and hide and regroup. It'll save us. And then Joshua prays, let the sun stand still. And we're told that the sun stands still for almost a whole day. Standing still in the sky, the moon, we're told, stands still as well. And the desired effect happens. As the daylight is extended, Israel destroys almost totally the Canaanite kings, this mighty alliance, only a few of them flee and escape to the villages. And then the kings, of the, they're trying to get away. At some point, they realize, uh-oh, we're in trouble. They try to get away. doesn't work. They hide in a cave. They're discovered. And then this, um, I have, we didn't read this today, but if you've got your Bibles open, you'll see. Then, then, then Joshua basically orders these five kings to be brought out, and they're laid down. And then he says, all right, leaders of Israel, come and put your feet on their necks. And that happens. And then after that, the judgment ends in a very brutal way. These five kings are executed, and then they're hung on trees as a sign that here's the judgment of God on the enemies of God. And then the, just before dark, 
they're taken down, they're thrown into the cave where they hid and it's sealed with heavy stones. Night comes. So that's Joshua chapter 10 and I think you can see already the theme of judgment, can't you? There's this theme of judgment that's actually really uncomfortable here. It's comforting for the Israelites because they're the ones who are seeing God's judgment worked on their behalf. But at least for me, it's easy to put myself in the shoes of those five kings and the soldiers in their armies and the families of of their, their loved ones and this catastrophe for them, which is described in chapter 10 of Joshua. It's a it's heavy. And, and so as, as I think we ask that question, which we should of Scripture, so, so what? This was written there, so what? What, is, what does it mean for you and I today? I think there's a, there's a couple of things that come out of this for us that are really worth examining and, and turning and holding. Number one, this chapter 10 reminds us that God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is coming on all those who disobey Him, it's coming. Now, uh, you would know, maybe you've said this yourself at some time in your life, or maybe you say this now. You say, yeah, but the world just keeps spinning. You know, it's 2,000 years. Jesus hasn't come back. There's no judgment. It's just going on as it always has. This, this, is, this is a human story. It's designed to f- make people afraid of this big bad God in the sky so that they can easily conformed and they, they'll do what they're told. It is not real. It's, it's not going to happen. It's just a nice story that religious people have used. People laugh at God's judgment. But I wonder about the Canaanites way back then, the Amorites in the land of Canaan, 400 years, knowing that God's judgment was, was coming against them for their sin at some point. But 400 years, it's never going to happen. But Joshua chapter 10 tells us that it will, it did. And in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3 verse 3, the Apostle Peter says this, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they'll say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter says in the last days, people say, yeah, yeah, whatever. Judgment of God. Yeah, whatever. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The first thing we see in Joshua chapter 10 is that God's judgment moves slowly. 400 years, those wheels of judgment were grinding, but in the end, it grinds very fine. In the end, it may be delayed, but it comes. So first thing we see there, judgment's coming. Secondly, we see in Joshua chapter 10 that God extends the day for Joshua in order to complete the destruction and the judgment of his enemies. But in the New Testament, today, God prolongs the day in order to extend his mercy. Say that again. In the Old Testament, in the day of Joshua, God uh, extends the day in order to increase his judgment on his enemies. Today, God prolongs the day in order to increase his mercy. So, 
Second Peter again, chapter 3 says, But do not overlook the fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to reveal His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You want a glimpse into the heart of God? Here it is. Peter says, you, make, you think he's not able to do it. You think he's delaying it because he can't do it. Or it's all just a fiction. It's a human invention. And Peter says, oh no, the heart of God is patient with you. He doesn't want anyone here today, right? Not a single person does he want to perish. He wants all to come into repentance. Every single soul in this room now, God extends to you his mercy and grace. He's withhold, he's extended the day before his final judgment, not to destroy you, but to save you. That you might hear right now, perhaps. And not just in this room, but, but outside the walls of this building in our city and beyond our city to the rest of the nation and then to the whole world. That's the heart of God. A heart that says, in mercy, I extend the day. The sun's still in the sky now. Not that I may increase your judgment that you might find mercy. If, you, if you're a Christian here today, most of us are, that should fill us with thankfulness. I'm so glad that God's judgment didn't come when I was 16. <laughs> and many of us would say the same. His mercy has allowed us to come to repentance and to be saved. If you're not yet a Christian, his mercy is extended to you in order that you might come to repentance, that you might not be judged, that you might not come under that final judgment of God. Thirdly, just as Joshua used well the extra time given to him in order to destroy the enemies of God, we are to use well the extra time that is given to us to save those who are loved by God but are lost. Joshua used the time that was given him well for the destruction of God's enemies. We need to use the extra time that is given to us well to extend his mercy to others and see them saved. Jude, uh, one of the smallest letters in the New Testament, just one chapter, but Jude, in verses 17 to 22, says this, says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It's these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment that's stained by their flesh. Isn't that interesting? Jude says, snatching others out of the fire. Uh, he, he doesn't view the world in which we live as, as lots of nice people doing their own things and going in their own ways. He sees it in two separate, very different destinations, salvation in God or destruction apart from God and judgment. And he says we've got, we've got to be reaching and snatching out people from the fire. I mean, the question that I always wrestle with myself in this is why am I still here? 
Why, why am I still here? I, I got to do the funeral for my grandmother yesterday. Now, why, don't, why doesn't God take me to be with her and Jesus now? Why am I still here in this world? With all of its challenges and struggles and difficulties, why doesn't Jesus just take me home? Well, I'll tell you the answer. It's very clear. The answer is that we are here now in order that we might live safe and comfortable lives. We're here now that we can spend the time to accrue possessions and have wonderful experiences. And as we grow older, we are left here so that we can eventually graduate to be gray nomads and go in the caravan around the world. And then eventually, we're here so that Jesus can come and say, well done, good and faithful servant. I entrusted you with so much and you spent it so well. Come and receive the inheritance being prepared for you since the beginning of the earth. That's why we're here, isn't it? Yeah. But you know what? You could be forgiven for thinking that. Like, let, let's be honest. Let's look at our own hearts. Couldn't you be forgiven that, for thinking that if you were outside, going, well, that's what Christianity is about? Living nice, comfortable lives and accruing material possessions and having great families and experiences and then, then doing all of the things and then going to be with Jesus when we die. You could be forgiven for thinking that was us, couldn't you? So often I think we, we forget about why we're here. And so we then give to God the dregs of everything else and focus on ourselves and then tell ourselves, oh, God is, is happy because he wants to bless me. He wants me to be materially prosperous. He wants me to do all these things. When God actually says, no, you're still here. Andrew, you're still here because there's a mission to do that's hugely important. There is people who are saved and people who are not saved. And we are given the mission by God as, as ambassadors of reconciliation, Paul says. So every single person here, if you're a Christian, you're an ambassador whether you're in your workplace or your family or whether you're playing in your sporting club, wherever you are, God says, you're my ambassador. That's why you're here. You're the ambassador of the king bearing reconciliation and mercy to a world that some might be snatched out of the fire. And by all means, enjoy the goodness of God. Enjoy material possessions. Enjoy achieving work success. Enjoy becoming a grey nomad in your caravan. That is fantastic. I'm no way. I love all those things. They're good things. But remember as you do it that that's not your identity. You're an ambassador of the king. The day has been extended, and it's been extended to allow you to keep doing that mission. Know Jesus, make Jesus known. Everything else, that comes second, Surely. This is why we're left here. And fourth, we, we carry out this mission not with violence, as Joshua did. In that Old Testament dispensation, we carry it out with mercy and grace and humility and love. Um, this week at the tennis club, I was, I was chatting with a guy, and he was saying, like, ah, oh, you Christians, you're too pushy. Now, you're, you're always trying to, to save people. I'm like, yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> I mean, anything else would be deeply unloving, wouldn't it? It's like, oh, I'm more interested in your forehand than I am about where you're going to spend eternity. That, that would be very unloving. But he has got a point, though, hasn't he? There have been times when, when as Christians, we've wanted to share the love of God, but we've done it in a way that's been unhelpful. And throughout the history of the church, there are times when <laughs> it was like very effective, probably, in one level, it's like, all right, you've got two choices, execution or baptism, which is it going to be? You know, and there were times when this happened. But that's not how it's meant to be. Uh, we, we know the words um, very clearly, I'm sure, where we're told that we are to always have a reason for the hope that we have. 
always have a reason when someone asks us, what, what, do, you, what do you believe that the sun stands still? But do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a good conscience before God and before others. So we don't use the violence that God commanded Joshua to execute his judgment. We're in the day of salvation and his people as ambassadors, we speak with love and compassion and mercy. Fourth, uh, we didn't read this bit, but Joshua placing his feet on the necks of the defeated enemies. For us, we need to place our feet on the neck of our defeated enemy. It's not people, it's sin, actually. And why, why would I talk about sin in the context of this passage of God's judgment? Because in the, in the, the writer of the Hebrews says, he says, cast off everything that hinders you. And what does he say? And the sin which so easily entangles you. You know, getting your, your they used to, with robes, they get tangled in your feet and you face plant. He says, it so easily entangles you. For us, it's not people that we put our necks on, but it's sin. And the reason is, it so easily entangles us. It distracts us from the mission. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, Paul says, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So why do we seek to live holy and upright lives? Why do we seek to, to push aside and flee from sin and to live lives that are pure? We, we do it because we have been crucified with Christ and that anything less is not only a denial of the one who saved us, but it, it's a hindrance to the mission he calls us. Isn't it a terrible thing when the world goes like, and someone said that to me this week, actually. They said, I can't listen to what you've got to say because of what the Catholic Church did to those children. That's exactly what he said. That's an unfair thing. It's not just the Catholic Church. But that sin entangles us. And it means that when we have the mission of reconciliation, people can easily turn away because they go, oh yeah, you Christians, look at you. you know, holiness is not just an abstract thing we fight for. Holiness is something that impacts the world in which we live. And sometimes we fall, Yes but we crucify sin because we don't want it to entangle us as we run the race to which we're called. Fifthly, finally, I should say Romans 16, 20. Sin will one day come under our feet. Do you know who else will? <laughs> the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Isn't that good news? Not only sin, but one day we're promised that we will crush that old liar himself once and for all. Not because of our strength and our ability, but because we, as the ambassadors of the king, will one day stand in judgment on angels, including him. He'll be crushed under our feet. Fifth and finally, live in hope. Live in great hope. Uh, some time ago, I'm not recommending this, this is a danger with, with sharing movies, but uh, I did see a movie uh, with one of my sons, Elijah, and it was called, I'm going to remember this, what was it? I Am Legend. Anyone ever seen that? A couple of years. I'm not necessarily recommending it. I quite enjoyed it. It's Will Smith, and he's living in post-apocalyptic zombie New York. And um, these zombies live in New York, and they only come out at night. And during the day, he's the last man alive, and he spends his day going around New York hunting deer in the middle of New York and all sort of stuff. Um, and it's safe as anything because the sun's in the sky. But the whole tension of the movie is that the sun's going down every day. 
And as the sun gets lower, he, he's got the alarms on his watch and he has to get ready and he has to sort of go and hide during the night because in the night these things come out, right? It's, it's, it's actually, it was, I quite enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> it, was a good, it was a good concept. But Will Smith is, is living in the light in fear of the night. But we as Christians have a great and wonderful hope. The sun is setting, right? The New Testament tells us that we're in the last, last days of planet Earth. The sun is, is going down in the sky. And, and Jesus spoke about signs. He says, you look at the world, you, you know the signs. You, you can look at the sky and go, oh, it's going to be stormy tomorrow, it's going to be nice weather. He says, well, look at the signs of the times which you live. The sun's going down. We don't know how high it is in the horizon, but it's going down. The rays are slanting already. It's going to set. But for us as Christians, the setting of the sun, whether it's our own life that ends or whether it's the return of Jesus, is not something for fear and doubt. It's not like the darkness is going to wash over and everything is gone. When the sun sets, it's only going to be for a great and brilliant blaze of dawn that will never end. We Christians have so much hope, and you know how we have hope? And if you're not a Christian, this is how you can have hope. God's darkness of his judgment's already fallen. It's fallen already. Listen, you'll know this, we'll speak it again in just a couple of weeks, but Luke 23, 44, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. There's another miracle. That's during the crucifixion of Jesus. Darkness comes, the judgment of God in darkness, like it fell on those, those Amorite sins people long ago, it falls on Jesus. He hasn't done anything to deserve it, but the sun is darkened. The judgment of God fell on Jesus, and that's such good news for us. And it didn't end there, like the Amorites, those five kings are, are executed and hung out on the trees. Jesus is, is executed and hung out on a tree, not for a sin that had built up for 400 years, but in the place of us. And then at the end of that, those Amorite kings are taken down and thrown into the cave and the stone is rolled on. And of course, who's taken down from the cross and thrown into a tomb and the heavy stone rolled across? But the Amorite kings, they're still there somewhere, presumably, dead and finished but why Christians have so much hope is Jesus didn't stay there. The stone was rolled away. He came forth. And, and you and I have nothing more to feel from death. Death has lost its sting. Yesterday at my grandmother's funeral, so wonderful just to go, yeah, death is grief. And I was crying. But death has lost its sting. Because I could say yesterday, my grandmother's no more in the tomb than Jesus is. Her body's there. But Jesus was raised and she is united with him and, and she will return with him. The sun blazes in all its glory. She's more alive than she's ever been before. And you and I have that same hope. If you're a Christian here, the judgment of God should fill you with urgency, but it should not fill you with fear. Because one day there'll be no more darkness. Revelation 22, 3 to 7, I'll finish with this. Listen to these words. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. 
and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon, says Jesus. So as we pause now, it's important to remember the judgment of God. And remember especially in this moment as it falls on Jesus on our behalf. And so as a church, we're gonna spend some time now taking communion. We're gonna remember that on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he he took the cup and again, giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so as we share that today, we're remembering that the judgment of God falls on Jesus Christ, that his broken body and shed blood is the means by which we have life. So I'm going to pray, going to invite the musicians up for us, and then um, we will take communion together. I'll explain how we'll do that in a moment, but let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we are thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful that while your judgment falls on a world that rebels against you, it's fallen already on Jesus, that he stood in our place. He was thrown in that tomb and he came storming out of that tomb alive, changing everything. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that while the urgency is real and while you leave us here as your ambassadors, that you promise us that we have nothing to fear from your judgment. It's been paid once and for all. And so, Lord, as we we now come and we take these elements of bread and of juice, We pray, Lord Jesus, that you in your mercy would encourage us with these truths until you come. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We'll we'll do that now. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.